0: Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Well, I want to echo Matt's welcome earlier. If you're a guest here today, we're so glad you came here to church. And this may be different from the church you're used to, uh, maybe from your background, maybe you've not been in church for a while. I met a man after last service. He said he hasn't been to church since he was 16, and he's in his mid-30s now. And we're a church with all kinds of backgrounds, but this is a place where you can pursue Jesus. And we're not, unashamed, or we're not ashamed to say that we love the Lord, we love pursuing Him, and love what He's doing in our lives. At the end of this service, if you're new here, we do have a welcome time for you in front of our fireplace area. with some refreshments, and one of our elders and, and his wife is there, and uh, one of our pastors is there to meet you, answer questions you might have, maybe even give you a tour around the building if you'd like to know uh, where various things are. They'll be there for you, so go there right after service today. Well, God bless you. <laughs> Well, today marks the last installment of our series, Delighting God. And my intention today was to bring you a message from the book of Exodus, when Moses is called by God to go talk to Pharaoh, and Moses says he won't go unless God goes with him, and God says that I'm pleased with you to, uh, because of the request. And I thought, what a great prayer of Moses saying, "God, I'm not going to go forward without you." And, and for us to say in our lives, I'm not going to go forward in my life without God. I want to make sure I'm on His path. I, I want to make sure that His blessing is with me. I want to make sure His hand is, is behind where I'm going in my life. But Monday morning, I woke up with a burden. And just some clarity from the Lord. After some various things have gone on, after the recent Supreme Court decision, and many people were posting things on Facebook, positions were stated, and uh, tempers flared, and sometimes friendships became fractured over what transpired over the course of the last couple of weeks. And I, I think God is disappointed, but I don't think his disappointment is as great with the United States of America as it is with his church. Because I think sometimes we've missed the mark on what our role is in helping our country stay on a path. See, our founding fathers were not ashamed to say they needed God. If you look back at our founding documents and you look at how God is woven in and even scriptures are quoted, you can't help but say that God played a significant role in the foundation of this country. I mean, it's in the Declaration of Independence. The source of our freedom is God. It's on the motto, on our coinage, in God we trust. It's there, and, but gradually it's slipping away and we're watching it all around us. We watched recently the Supreme Court in Oklahoma tell um, the government there that they had to remove a six-foot uh, granite monument that had engraved on it the Ten Commandments. And part of the reason they had to remove it was because they said uh, the government should not be in the business of promoting religion. Now, I have to tell you, you cannot read the founding documents and find that religion is absent, it's very present. What they were against was the establishment of a particular denomination, whether it be Presbyterian, Congregational, Baptist, Methodist, any of that. But they were not opposed to God being a significant part. But, but that's gradually eroding in our culture. In fact, one of the reasons why that became a big issue in Oklahoma was because uh, the, the, the satanic temple challenged them to say that we want to also put a monument of our religion, on government property. And they said, nobody's going to get to do this. In three weeks, the satanic temple actually is going to unveil their nine-foot monument to their God they worship, to Satan. Now, it's not the Satan of the Bible, this, this angelic being, this evil demon thing that travels around the world and influences people. What they describe as Satan is our inner rebellious nature. That that is what they worship, the man's hunger for freedom. And, and we all desire freedom, it's just we're going about it two different ways. But it just, it just emphasizes the fact that we are in a culture where there's a great spiritual battle taking place. And it is a battle, the scripture says, is not decided by ballots and bullets. It's a battle that's decided uh, through the prayers that are offered up. Uh, my wife and I went to the fireworks last night. And we saw these great explosions in the sky, beautiful colors and sounds. And I couldn't help but think, when God looks at his church, does he see see a firework display of prayers going up to heaven, calling out on God to do what only God can do? See, I I believe that what the world needs most of all is not a new president in the White House, not a new mayor in City Hall. What, What they need most of all is Jesus Christ. And I believe that when Jesus is at the central place of a person's life, and this may sound pretty simplistic to some of you. And I I don't want to make it sound like just Jesus is the answer for everything, but the truth is Jesus is the answer for everything because, here's why, when when Jesus is Lord of your life, he makes you a better husband, better wife, better employee, better handler of your finances, better citizen, better neighbor. You become better in every area of your life. What our country needs most of all is Jesus. And so today, I, I want us to pray to win. Not pray to win a political battle, not pray to win an argument or debate, but pray to win people to Christ. And the Bible gives us some clear direction of how to do that. In fact, it's found in Second, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read a passage there. And actually, before we read it, what I want to do is actually have us pray to begin the service. And we're actually going to end the service in prayer too, a time where all of us corporately, as the body of Christ, are going to pray for our nation. But we're actually going to start the message right here. And asking God to speak to us individually about what his desire for our lives is as his church. So, Father, we come before you humbly, uh, pleading with you to open our eyes to a better approach. Father, many of us have tried the wrong approach to try to change a culture. And in many ways, it's pretty simple. That you tell us in Scripture what we are to be devoted to doing. And I pray, Lord, that as we study this, I pray that you convict our hearts to be more faithful. That we would please you in this area of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Paul's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. That's been our theme for the last month, pleasing God. The Bible says, find out what pleases God. This pleases God. God, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. God is pleased when we make it easier for people to find Jesus Christ. God is pleased when we do our part in making this pathway for a person to surrender to Jesus, when we make that easier. The ultimate end is not that America is great. It's not that democracy is global, but it's the fact that Jesus is glorified. That's the desire that God has for us. Uh, We just happen to be in a place where God maybe has been using our government, but there's nothing sacred about the United States of America or any nation that has existed. So what do we do? Well, the Bible gives, in this passage, three responses of the church to make it easier for people to find Jesus. Number one is to lift up our leaders. I urge them, first of all, not as a tag along, but first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority. First things first. He says, you ought to be praying for the people that are over you. Pray for the people that are in positions of influence. Uh, pray for the people that you report to. See, in the biblical era where this was written, their governments were very oppressive. Some of the Christians lived in, under governments who were actually persecuting, even killing Christians. And yet he says, pray for those leaders. Pray for those in authority. They need to know that God is working. They need the spiritual support in their lives. Prayer makes a difference in our government. Our founding fathers knew that. You go back through the documents and you find over and over again that prayer was a significant part. I was reading about John Adams. John Adams was their second president after George Washington. He he said something that was pretty dramatic. He said the 4th of July to him, was a spiritual holiday second to christmas he said it was a it was a day where we are to remember our human freedom a day for solemn acts of devotion to god almighty early in the history of our country when they were gathered to form this document called the constitution there was a lot of tension a lot of debate over what would go in this document that would become the, really the charter to form a whole new democracy and and it formed a democracy that's lasted longer than any other democracy in history. And yet they took great pains to craft the right words and, and the right statements within it. And they, they, they reached some impasses where they were arguing and debating and, and, and it was a stalemate. And Benjamin Franklin rose up, this older statesman. Benjamin Franklin said, Don't you think that we ought to be praying about this? Don't you think this ought to be a time of fasting and seeking God? Don't you remember that during the period of the Revolutionary War, how we sought God day after day and God heard our prayers? Shouldn't we be going back to that place of prayer? And so to the Continental Congress, he made this statement. It's kind of a long quote, but it's powerful. Listen to this. Benjamin Franklin said, Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. Have we now forgotten that powerful friend? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings. He's he's, going to quote the Bible. Benjamin Franklin is going to quote the Bible. People say that he's not a Christian, that he was a deist. He didn't really believe the Bible and God the way we do. But he's quoting the Bible to the Continental Congress, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. Is it possible that the gridlock we experience in our government... Directly related to the lack of seeking god 's direction by our leaders, something else they did. They asked that a clergyman come in to the assembly every day that before they would start business, they would offer prayers of thanksgiving and a request to god don 't tell me, our, our early founding fathers did not believe. And the, and the power of an active God in shaping their decisions, and shaping our history. Our, our leaders sometimes today are reluctant to say they, they're devoted to God and reluctant to call on this higher power. But our forefathers weren't ashamed of this at all. But you know, the problem isn't, isn't just the leaders. I think the bigger problem is believers. Because we are called to be praying for them. We are called to be lifting them up with thanksgiving and intercession. Yet so often I hear more condemnation coming from Christians toward politicians than prayers. And so we'll post our viewpoints on Facebook. And we'll crank up talk radio and listen to the, you know, the Fox News and, and all these things. And rather than devote ourselves to humble prayer. I have to say that I'm actually ashamed to admit that I cannot recall in my life one time where I've sat with my children and said, let's pray for our country. We've prayed for a lot of things. Prayed for our church, prayed for our family, prayed for relatives. I don't, I don't remember praying for our country. I'm as guilty of it as many of us are. We don't make this a regular item of prayer. But our leaders aren't the enemy. It's not the president that's the enemy. It's not a mayor that's the enemy. It's not a political party that's the enemy. They may be victims of the enemy, but the enemy is a spiritual power and we have to fight him with spiritual weapon. That spiritual weapon, the primary one, is prayer. If you go back to the Old Testament, I just, I just happened to read this passage in my quiet time Monday, which confirmed to me this is the message we need to talk about today. God is speaking to the nation of Israel as they're dedicating this grand temple that Solomon built and God says something to Solomon to convey to the people. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Here's what he says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If my people, sometimes we think that that's the United States of America, but it's not. It's those who call his name. Those who are called his children, the believers. If my people, my church family, if my people would, would come to me humbly, humbly, not with our agenda, but with seeking his agenda, seeking his face, saying, God, not my kingdom come, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if we would turn from our wicked ways, you might think, well, I don't, I'm not a wicked person, but wicked simply means I've chosen another voice to listen to other than God. I've chosen a different direction other than God's. That's what's wicked. To reject the God who made us, who formed us, who redeemed us and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give loyalty to someone else. And I've done that many times and you have too. And we need to turn from those wicked ways. And he says, when you do that, when you repent of those sins, you come back to me, I will forgive all of that. Not only that, I'll bless the place where you live. I will bless the land. So let me ask you, how much time do you spend devoted to that? How much time do you spend devoted to prayer for our leaders? I'm not too worried that God's upset with our Supreme Court justices or any politicians. I'm more concerned that God's frustrated with the church. That we don't come together to pray for this. But it goes beyond that. We pray for leaders because they help establish an environment for us to do the second thing, to live out our faith. What does that look like? It says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We pray for leaders who allow us to live a life that, that testifies to what God is doing in our lives, that we can go worship freely, that we can do acts of justice and mercy freely freely. That we're not penalized for those things. We want a culture in which we can exercise our faith because when we do it in the right way, we become a blessing to the culture. Uh, our job is to testify through our lives. I believe that a, a devoted follower of Jesus is is ought to be the best employee, ought to be the best student, ought to be the best citizen, the best neighbor, the best friend. Don't you agree? We ought to be that. We ought to be the example to the culture, not the exception. People, people don't need to know whether you're right or left or independent. What they should know is that Jesus is your Lord, that he's king. In many wars, there are mottos. Like there was a motto, uh, remember the Alamo. There was a motto, remember Pearl Harbor. In the Revolutionary War, when, when the first Americans were breaking ties with Britain, one of the things that bothered them the most was King George III believed in the divine right of kings to speak the voice of God, that their, their voice was equal to the voice of God. And so these early leaders says, no, no, no. Here was their motto. We have no king but Jesus. No king but Jesus. I know they weren't real religious, but, but they had no king but Jesus. He was their Lord. And if he's the, our Lord, it ought to make a difference in our lives. A little girl was asking her mother how big God was. And she said, oh, he's very big. He made the whole world. He made the universe. And the little girl said, I mean, he's, he's bigger than all that? She goes, he's, he's huge. And, she, and the little girl says, but mom, I heard that we can ask God to come live in our hearts. And she said, that's true. The Bible says you can ask Jesus to come live in your heart. And she said, well, if God's so big and he comes to live in little me, then he'll show through, won't he? And I think that's a beautiful picture of what Christian testimony ought to be like. This great big God we believe in fills us so much that he starts to show through. I, I think that we have a great opportunity to show our culture what a life looks like when it's lived under the lordship of Christ. In fact, Peter writes in, in one of his epistles, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And the day he visits with us. So often I think we feel that um, we've got to be the voice of one calling in the wilderness, like John the Baptist. I'm going to be the the radical out there. I'm going to be on the soapbox telling people to to believe in God and obey the Bible. Or I'm going to be like Elijah when he confronted the prophets of Baal or Jezebel and Ahab. And I'm going to be that voice that calls out the truth. Nobody else will tell the truth, but I'm going to do it. And if it means just blasting on Facebook, I'm going to do it. Yet, Paul writes here and tells us to live lives that are marked by being peaceful and quiet, godly, and righteous. It doesn't mean that we're to be passive doormats, but I think what it means is this. Our lives should speak louder than our words. Our love should be bolder than the words we even speak. The sacrifice, the depth of commitment we offer to other people ought to convict them of of the truth that Jesus is in our lives. See, I could spend my whole life trying to influence government, to make all these laws so that people um, behave properly, they don't misbehave sexually, and they don't ingest things that they shouldn't ingest in their body because they're destructive and they're chemicals and all that. I could spend all my time, but you know what? Um, That only has limited impact. There There are countries all around the world that have tougher laws than we do, and yet those people are so far from God still, so lost, so broken. What people need is not... It's not firmer laws, bigger fences on the border, more tax breaks. What people need is Jesus. When Jesus comes in, he begins to transform a life. I mean, I can't, I can't change the people around me. I can't even change myself hardly. Uh, how do you know that, sir? No. <laughs> am I that bad? I, I, yes, I am. And I can't even change my kids. How, why am I going to try to change a non-Christian culture? Why do we think that Christians are going to make non-Christians act like Christians when they don't have Jesus? It's impossible. Our job is, is not to change everybody. Our job is to introduce people to the life changer. And then he will change people. That's, that's the arrangement he has made. And so one of the things I think we've gone wrong is, is just in this area of marriage. We've conveyed to our kids that marriage is not really desirable, that that. It's actually a deplorable condition to be in because you're trapped and you're with this person stuck forever. And so our kids have grown up watching mom and dad get divorced, watch mom and dad fight. And so is it any surprise that our culture has said, you know what, that, that's not working anymore. It's just not working anywhere. So we need to reformat it. We need to redesign it because it's just, just broken. And yet I believe that, that God intended something very beautiful when he said, there is a man and there is a woman and they're very different by nature. But yet when you put them together in a bond of love, it becomes something that's wonderful. And, and when love is shared within those bonds, children get born and they get raised in that culture. I still believe that's God's ideal for the family, for the home, and what people ultimately find greatest fulfillment in. And yet we fail our culture by displaying a, a marriage system that just isn't, isn't working. And so we need, to, we need to elevate that and show our kids and show our neighbors, yes, this is beautiful. It's not perfect, but it's wonderful. And God's grace is displayed within a marriage because a marriage between a man and a woman is actually representative of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And so we have a chance to display in our lives what it's like when Jesus is Lord. But even more than our marriage, I think what we need to display is love. When we rant, when we um, pontificate, when we blast things out on social media, here's the problem. Nobody sees tenderness in your voice. Nobody sees love in your eyes. Nobody, nobody sees the body language that conveys love, if there is even love there. And they just misread it, and it sounds preachy, and it sounds judgmental, and it sounds narrow-minded. And I would just encourage you that Facebook is not the place to have serious discussion or debate. That, that you should be relational. Sit down with someone, talk, convey your love. Even if you disagree, make sure that you love them. Didn't Jesus say, all men will know you are my disciples if, if, you, if you speak louder? No, he says, if you love one another. Love is the defining mark of a Christian. I was, I was disturbed when I was watching an episode of The Briefcase. Last week I told you about this thing called The Briefcase. If you haven't seen it, it's a great show. I think it's got some great questions and things that you have to wrestle through about values. And, uh, there was an episode with a Christian family. And this couple received $100,000 that they then could choose either to keep or to give to a family in need. And they learned of another couple who had, a, who had some children. They had some pretty significant needs. And they had determined that they were going to be generous with the money they'd received and give to this other family until they, they learned this other family was parented by two lesbians. And all of a sudden, they, they brought back their generosity a few notches. They gave something but not as much as they were planning to give before because they, they wrestled with the idea of how can we kind of support something we don't agree with. But I have to tell you, when I read through the Gospels, Jesus never discriminated in the area of love. He didn't go to the prostitute and say, you know what, I disagree with you, so I'm going to love you a little less than that person who goes to the synagogue. Or that tax collector, you know, if you change, I love you more. Love should be non-discriminatory. In fact, Jesus went so far as to say, you want to know who to love? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to them who oppose you and persecute you. For this is the way my heavenly Father loves. Be perfect in that kind of love. We should be known as people who love. And so when we pray for our leaders to to form a government, put laws in place that allow us to love people freely, which I think we have a lot of opportunity in our culture, then that's a good thing, but it doesn't end there. There's one other stage. We're to lay out the gospel. We're to lay out the gospel. It says that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man... Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all mankind. The answer is not Ben or Jeb or Hillary. The answer is Jesus. God says, I provided the one key. But there's one mediator that can bring people and God together. And that's my son, Jesus Christ. We don't get to decide how many options there are. God says, there's one way. It's through my son. And it's an effective way. It truly works. And he brings these two opposing parties together. Now, in your bulletin is, a, is just a little drawing there. We're trying to draw a couple mountains. didn't come out real well. But if you want to write some things down, you can actually share this simple picture with someone so they can understand what Jesus has done for them. Because if you pitch ourselves at, on two separate sides of a canyon, and man is on one side and God on the other, And the reason they're separated is because God is perfect, God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, we are not, we're sinful, Um, we're disobedient, we're rebellious, and we are separate from God. And there's a chasm between us because of this thing called sin. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, it says, but your iniquities or your sins have separated you from your God has separated, created a chasm. There's a barrier between you and God. And it's because of sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the ultimate destiny for all humankind is eternal separation from God in the place the Bible calls hell. And if we try to, to, to bridge that chasm, there's no way you can leap far enough. In other words, there's, there's not enough good behavior to make up for the sins in your life to build that bridge to God. And so we're at an impasse. Here we are imperfect. Here God is perfect. And, uh, and we, can't, we can't bridge that divide. And so here's what God did. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says it so clearly. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. When Jesus died on the cross, in essence, he became that bridge between man and God. As a man, he was able to identify with sin. As an eternal God, he was able to identify with the heavenly father. And and it's like he took the hand of man and the hand of the father and says, now you can be one. Because I've removed the barrier that's been in between. I've removed the sin. I gave my life as a ransom, as a payment, for the consequences of sin. So Jesus became that bridge. And Jesus truly reconciles us to God. Several years ago, pastor of a small church in Pennsylvania decided to spend his evenings differently. Instead of watching two hours of TV every night, he began to pray. And he began to pray specifically for some gang members in New York City who were guilty of some violent crimes, including murder. And as he prayed for these young men and women his heart was convicted to to go to New York City and to reach out to these individuals he ended up leading many to Christ including a young man named Nikki Cruz who eventually set up his own ministry moved to Colorado Springs and based it here this pastor's name was David Wilkerson started a ministry called Teen Challenge which still exists all across our country helping troubled young men and women find Jesus because he knows Jesus is the answer changing lives is God's business introducing people to Jesus is our business that's a word to be about we are to pray to win pray for our leaders that they establish an environment in which we then can live out our faith and as we live out our faith it creates the credibility so that we have the opportunity to lay out the gospel to someone so they can be introduced to the one that truly changes their lives but are you praying to win You know, on a a Sunday morning, you might come here and find a group of high school kids outside this building. They sometimes sit on the lawn, sometimes they walk around the building, and they're not skipping church. You know what they're doing? They're praying. They're praying. Isn't that great to know our high school kids are praying for our community, for us, for our world? But the sad thing is, I wonder if our kids ever look at the adults and see them praying. You know, all across the country, one of the saddest sights is church prayer meetings. We actually had to stop having our prayer meeting here as a congregation because it got down to where we had less than a dozen people showing up every couple of weeks for prayer. We wonder why America's sliding down this path. I don't think it's a surprise at all. How often do you cry out to God on behalf of your leaders? How, how quick are you to live a life of love that opens up the doors for you to share the message of Jesus with the people around you? Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the last century, said, I would rather train one man to pray than ten men to preach. Because he knew that if he could get someone to pray fervently, he could change the world. And, friends, I believe that that we will change our culture, not at the ballot box, not at the election time, not through petitioning and picketing. We will change our culture on our knees. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.